0: Well, we are in Romans chapter 8. If you would like to, I'm going to start in, in John, uh, the Gospel of John chapter 8 for just a moment. If you want to go over there and read along with me, you can. Or just listen to me as I read the story of the woman caught in adultery. Uh, John in your Bible is just a little bit to the left of Romans, just a tad. You go through Acts and then you get to John chapter 8. And I want to read this and, and the purpose is to kind of set up uh, what we're going to talk about today in Romans chapter 8 which will primarily be the uh, verses 5 through 8 of of Romans chapter 8. So here is John chapter 8, the first 10 or 11 verses. And this story I know is probably familiar to most, if not all of you, even if you've never been in church before. You've probably heard about this story before. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees, the professional religious people of the day who were bothered by Jesus, they came to him. uh, They brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, in in the middle of all the people, right in front of Jesus, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, the Mosaic law, uh, it commands us to stone such woman, women. Uh, that means that they would take her and uh, essentially throw her in a ditch, and, and they would throw large stones on her until she died. Okay? So what do you say, Jesus? This they said to him to test him, that, he might ha- that they might have some charge to bring against him. They wanted to get rid of Jesus. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, <clears throat> And from now on, sin no more. Now, like I said, that's a fairly familiar uh, story um, that, that many of us have heard uh, one time or another, even if we've never been in church. And, and the purpose is not to unpack it exegetically right now and answer all the questions that might be swirling around, but rather to, uh, to just make one point, and that's this. What we know about that story especially is that no one threw a stone at her and then Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And we like that. Just like last week when we talked about Romans chapter 8, verse 1. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. And, And we like that. And that's good. And that's really good. What we tend to forget, though, is that Jesus didn't quit talking after he said to her, neither do I condemn you. He also said, now go and sin no more. That's the part we tend to forget about. Because we wonder how that's even accomplished. And we recognize how... Difficult it is, and here's the worst part, it brings tension to the story. It would have been so much better for us if Jesus had said, neither do I condemn you, now go. And that's it. But the idea of not sinning anymore uh, brings tension. And and so that's the tension we're going to deal with today. Because Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that we are no longer condemned if we're in Christ Jesus. But in chapter 4, he then says that we actually are going to fulfill the law if we walk by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit in us. Wow! And then verses 5 through 8 sort of unpacks that. And that brings us tension. We, we, we want to know about how we're forgiven and saved and no condemnation and redeemed and restored. But then the idea that there's something else going on is what's going to bring us some trouble. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. So I want to review a little bit. I want to get us up to date. Last week we talked about, like I said, no condemnation. That even when we fail, we can't be defeated. And we really did a review, and I I think it's important to hit it again, uh, of Romans 7 leading up to Romans 8. How important that context is. That in Romans chapter 7, Verses 7 through 13, Paul is without Christ in his life, but he's aware of the law, and he's trying hard to live up to the law, and he says, I can't do it. In other words, he says, there's no way I can win. Verses 7 through 13, there's no way to win. There's no way to be victorious. In fact, the law only stirs up our our tendencies to sin. It it doesn't do us any good whatsoever um, in terms of being able to live up to what the law says. But then in verses 14 through 25... He's talking about life as a Christian, life being filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and it's odd because we see him struggling with sin. He does the things he doesn't want to do and he doesn't do the things that he's supposed to do and he, and he struggles there. But ultimately what he says is, now that I'm in Christ and now that the Spirit is dwelling within me, even if I fail, I can't lose. I cannot be defeated. And that's what chapter 8 in Romans is all about. There's no defeat. Once you're in Christ. But there's still tension. There's still tension because we have to live out and walk out uh, this life. And, and then, so we get to Romans 8.1. There's now no condemnation. And then we have that wonderful verse, eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 3. One of my favorite verses in the Bible where it says that God did for us what the law, weakened by our flesh, could not do for us. So many of us are... Or trying hard to live up to some sort of law or moral code, whether it's external to us, like the Mosaic law or some other cultural paradigm, or, or something that we've made up for ourselves. We've just selected certain things from life and said, "This is what I think it means to be a good person. I'm going to try to live up to that." And the problem is is that under our own power, w- when we're in our own flesh, we simply can't do it, even the laws that we make up for ourselves. We can't do it all the time. We will always fail. Again, one of the great lines is this, uh, the law, the Mosaic law, reveals to us, shows us the character of God, but it has no way to give us the power to have the character of God. In other words, the, the law will show us where we fall short and what the character of God means, but there's no outlet that we can plug into in the law that will give us the power to live up to the law. We can't have the character of God by trying to follow the law. And like I said, even beyond that, the law stirs up our flesh to, 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 to sin. We, you know, we see a sign that says wet paint. I, I, I got to go and touch that dog. Make sure, you know, there's, there, my thumbprint is all over the place where there's been wet paint. I'm telling you, you know. The no shooting sign just out of Payson that's riddled with bullet holes, okay. There's just something about being told what to do that stirs up our flesh and makes us want to do that. Every moral law. Every moral code, whatever it is, whether it's the Mosaic code or, or you come from a Baptist background or a Presbyterian background or Muslim or, or a cultural code or, or even the ones we make up for ourselves, like I said, we will eventually fall short. So the law can't do this for us, only God can do it. God has to intervene in our life to give us salvation. But once that, done, that is done, we're told in verse 4, Paul says that that. Uh, we are able to fulfill the law because we walk by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God who now resides in us. And so verses 5 through 8 unpack what verse 4 says. We looked at it briefly last week. We're going to look at it much more in depth today. So here's what Romans 8, 5 through 8 says, and then we'll dive in. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is peace and life. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, right out of the gate, you listen to those four verses, and and if if you're reading uh, with any measure of consciousness, you're saying... My mind being set on something is really the key to that whole paragraph, that whole passage. That's a big deal. So what does it mean to set our minds on something? What is Paul getting at here? Because it's all over these four verses. The Greek word to set your mind on something that's used here is the Greek word phroneo, And the problem with this word is that the depth of the word is very difficult to translate into English because we don't... We don't have words that kind of speak like this, but essentially the problem, the challenge comes in, in that phreneo combines both the visceral and the cognitive aspects of thinking. It combines cognitively and, and, and how we feel, our passion, our, our, our emotions. It combines both of those things. It means that we set our minds on something in such a way that it always results in behavior. In other words, you don't just think about it, And you don't just have feelings about it, but you go and do it. Uh, In in the communication discipline, you read any basic communication textbook. And eventually it will tell you that the way we evaluate really good uh, communication messages is you evaluate them for three things. Number one, did it appeal to the audience cognitively? Did you give them facts and evidence and reason and logic? But also, secondly, did it, did it appeal affectively? Uh, did you take all the facts and the logic and did you weave it into an interesting narrative and a, and a story that might tug on our hearts? Did you, did you elicit some emotion in your presentation? Was there affect as well as a cognitive response? And if there was, both of those things done very well, it will result in a behavioral response. People will change their behavior based on that, then, then you know you have a pretty good communicative message. And we all do this more often than we think. What we really, really, truly, truly believe, what we freneo in our lives, that is how we're going to behave. We will behave that way. Guys, I'll pick on you a little bit, especially if you're married, married guys. Okay, Occasionally I run into this um, because it tends to go this way more than the other way. You know, a wife will complain, you know, I, I, I don't think you love me. And, and the husband will say, well, I tell you all the time I love you. And she will say, yes, you tell me, but you never show me. Yeah, see, a lot of women show, you never show me, okay? So here's what she's saying. She's saying, I am basing what you believe on your behavior, not just what you say you think about, uh, you think about. What we truly believe, what we, we see that every day. We think that's what people really believe is how they're behaving. Somebody behaves in a certain way and they go, oh, that's not really him. Yes, it is. It is really him. Okay? So we all do this more than we think. And, and, and it's really the big things where this becomes important. We all think about the big things in our life in such a way that it causes us to give our lives to it and to walk it out. And it's a lot like um, the, the rudder of, of, a, uh, of a ship or the tail of a jet. You know, you got this huge uh, 737 and that, that little tail is going to kind of direct that plane where it's going to go. Or the rudder of a ship, big ship, that rudder is going to direct... Where it's going to go? What we freneo, thats going to direct our lives. It'll dictate what we what we spend our life on. Yeah. And, and so Paul says, "Listen, if you set your mind on the flesh, you're going to do stuff that's not going to result well for you, in in a multitude of ways. You're going to sin, but you're also going to try to make yourself righteous in the flesh as well, which you can't do. And none of that works. But if you set your mind on the Spirit, here's what Paul is saying." When our minds, in a visceral way, in an affective way, both cognitively and viscerally, when we're set on the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God is never going to lead us to transgress the law. We wouldn't even have to know what the law is. That's what Galatians 5 says. If you cross what we're looking at today with Galatians chapter 5, the last half, and the first part of Galatians 6, what Paul says there is... You don't even need to know the law if you're being led by the Spirit because the Spirit will never lead you to transgress the law. So live your life in the Holy Spirit, which has been given to you by Christ Jesus. Jesus even said in John chapter 15, when he's talking about the vine and the branches, he said, listen, apart from me, you can do nothing. To walk out your life, to live out your life, it's got to be done by the power of Jesus in us. And I know that for, for those of us who are believers, intellectually, cognitively, we get this. We can, we can even articulate this. We could argue the case. Of course, the problem for most of us is not just cognition. It's, it's the whole package. It's for nail. And part of what's hard is that you and I are always looking, just, just the way human beings are wired, you and I are always looking for something to do. We're always looking for something to do in order to improve our lives and and, and to please God and to be a good person rather than what the gospel is, which is something has been done to us, for us, and in us. In our humanity, we just push back against that. No, there's something I have to do. I need a list. I need a methodology. I need a formula. I need something that I can stick on my hard drive. I I need something that I can go to and check off. And God is saying, no, the gospel doesn't work that way. The gospel has been done for you. It's finished in Christ, and it's given to you, and it resides in you through the, whole, the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's a challenge. I know, and I know this is an observation, not an evaluation, so please don't take it that way. It's just an observation. A lot of, I do a lot of marriage counseling and pastoral counseling and shepherding. And, and, and almost always, Almost always, somebody will come in, especially if they're in crisis, but almost always anyway, even if they're not in crisis, and they'll sit down, and, and within 10 minutes, they, they want me to tell them what to do. What do I do? How do I fix this? What's the formula? What's the methodology? How do, what do I do? And what I find myself doing is I just want to talk about Jesus. Well, do you know Jesus. Do you understand the gospel, that it's, it's in you? Are, are you walking by the Spirit? That's very frustrating for people who want something to do. It is, I recognize that. But living by the Spirit, what some people call Christian holiness, living by the Spirit is not a matter of detailed conformity to the specific demands of an external law code such as the Mosaic Law or some moral code that you've outlined for your life, but rather, here it is, it is the Holy Spirit producing fruit in your life. That is Christian holiness. It's the Holy Spirit residing in you, you walking in the Spirit, and Him producing fruit in your life. So Paul says in verses 5 and 6 that if you freneo the flesh, you'll live by the flesh. You'll sin in the flesh, you'll try to be righteous in the flesh apart from God, but if you freneo the spirit, you will live by the spirit. And that freneo, that mindset, puts us in, this Is very important, it puts us in either death or it puts us in life and peace. Notice that Paul does not say that if you set your mind on the flesh, it will lead to death. No, he says it is death, you are in death. In other words, you don't have time. So many of us think that we have time. I'll get the God thing worked out. I'll figure it out. No, you don't get to test this out and have a lot of fun or try hard under your own power before it leads to death eventually sometime down the road. Paul says, you're already there. You're already dead. You're in death right now. But it's the same with the Spirit. If you're living in the Spirit, you are living in life and peace. You have that now. It's not just that we get to go to heaven. We have it now. And here's something we really need to think about when it comes to verse 6 because of context. When we talk about the flesh in verse 6, it can be and often is, but it is not always. Here's the key. It's not always worldliness in a way that we understand it, but rather it's in the flesh pursuing righteousness through the law. When Paul talks about being in the flesh, and being dead as a result of it, he's not just talking about when we walk out in sin, he's talking about when we try to live according to some moral code. By our flesh, by our power, because we cannot do it. We're dead apart from the power of Christ. See, you and I, when we hear that word worldliness or worldly, we think of hedonism and pursuing sin, But it's also a worldly thing for all of us, every one of us, to pursue some measure of righteousness and acceptance. That's a worldly thing to do. It's a worldly thing to seek approval and to try to feel good about ourselves. And we're wired to do that. We want to be well thought of. We want to be perceived as good. The problem is, when we do it in the flesh, all it does is lead to frustration and despair, or it leads to pride, neither of which honor God, and neither of which are good for us. In other words, legalism does not work. It always, always ends in futility, one way or another. If it ends in despair and frustration, I can't live, I can't do it, I can't live up to it. I've tried, I did well for seven days or three minutes or nine months, whatever it is. I tried, but I just can't do it under my own power, so forget it. I'm just going to bag the whole thing. I mean, I'm just going to go crazy. And we begin to rationalize sin. God, God isn't going to be pleased with me anyway. I might as well go all the way and have a lot of fun when I'm sinning. So, so we get goofy that way. Or there are those people who really believe that they are actually living up to whatever moral code it is that they're trying to live up to. And they become proud. And they become self-righteous. And they become arrogant. Arrogant. And many of them are Christians and they go to church every Sunday. And they would claim Jesus Christ as their savior, but they'd also say, but why wouldn't he save me? (laughs) There's nothing in us that makes him want to save us other than his character of love and holiness that wants to draw us into him. And even after he saves us, there's nothing we can do. But we're called to walk out this life by the power of his spirit. Let me tell you two things that I've noticed about people who have this self-righteous pride that they they really think that they're living up to some moral code. Here's the first thing. They can't even get to first base with God because they're filled with pride and God abhors pride. Look Look in the Bible, look in the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. How often does God speak against pride? It's, it's the ones, he, he abhors pride. So if you're proud of yourself and your self-righteousness, that stinks to God. Okay? But then the second thing, I, it's always interesting to me, and I've been this person before, it's always interesting when we find out what self-righteous people do when they are hidden when they're not front stage, when they are backstage. What we need to understand is that if we're in our flesh for our righteousness, we're also going to be in our flesh for our pleasure. And part of the problem is is that we're so filled with our own self-righteousness that we'll even run to sin in private because in our minds we're justifying it saying, I can handle it, they can't. I can handle this sin. It's those other unrighteous people who can't. And we do that. So one of the things we really need to remember, which I mentioned last week, and what Paul, I believe, keeps saying in Romans 7 and 8, is that moral demands merely invite transgression. If I gave you a list of all these behaviorisms that you should change and ways that you could improve your life if if, if I modified your behavior somehow, it's only going to invite transgression. Now, we'll get to the hostility to God thing in verse 7 in a second, but one thing we need to remember now is that what we're talking about is religiosity. It's religion, and that is hostile to God. God doesn't like religion. He doesn't. And and here's why religion is a problem. Number one, religion always tries to eliminate God by you being your own savior, by me being my own savior. Well, if I do this, then I'll be acceptable to God. I've saved myself. It's not how God operates. Second of all, religion almost always leads to destructive self-righteous behavior, like the Apostle Paul when he would go out and kill people who didn't believe the same way he believed. Before Paul became Paul, he was Saul, and he was killing Christians because he felt he had the right way to God, and they had the wrong way, and they needed to be eliminated. Now, I know some of you are like, hey, man, I've never killed anybody with my religion. Maybe not physically. But the truth is, and here's one of the things that we all struggle with. The truth is, is that when we begin to idolize something in ourself, like our self-righteousness, always, 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 we also begin to demonize things that we find offensive to us in other people. So when we idolize, we also demonize. And that's a problem, and religion leads to that as well. And then finally, religion always leads to sins of the flesh when you become either filled with pride or filled with despair. It's just the way it works. So Paul exhorts us to walk by the Spirit. Walk by the one who has done what we cannot do. Walk by the one who has given us his love and has filled us with his love so that we can love God back and love others the way we should. Romans 13, Paul writes, Owe no one anything except to love each other For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. If you're walking in the perfect love of God, you're walking by a spirit and you will naturally fulfill the law. So now you get to verse 7 where Paul explains that those whose minds are on the flesh are hostile to God. And, And one of the things he's saying here is that there's no way to be neutral about Jesus. Okay? You may have an opinion of Jesus that allows you to feel like you're neutral about Jesus. Well, I'm... I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not a Jesus for, I'm not in with them. But he's okay. He's a good teacher. He's a nice guy. I don't have anything against Jesus either. I'm sorry, but the scriptures clearly teach that you're either in or you're out. There's no way to be neutral. It's also interesting in verse 7 how Paul sets up the fact that if you're hostile to God, you're also in opposition to peace. James chapter 4 verse 4 says this, Friendship with the world is hatred toward God. And again, James is talking about sin there when he says friendship with the world, but he's talking about so much more there. He's talking about how the fact that it's the world's way to emphasize how to save yourself. That's the world system. We're gonna fix ourselves. We're gonna save ourselves. We're gonna figure it out. We don't need God. What I'm about to say to you, I guarantee you, I just know from experience when I get into these kinds of waters, um, I'll get more negative emails about this than anything else. I could get up here and, and teach uh, heresy. I mean, doctrine that a Redemption Church would, would throw me out for, and I wouldn't get as any, many emails as what I'm about to say. But I think it's a perfect example of what we're talking about here. We are a culture that is just desperately in love with these reality shows. Biggest Loser, Top Chef, The Models, The Bridesmaid, all, all, of, all, of, the, all of these reality shows. And I'm going to get emails from my wife and my daughters, as a matter of fact, because they like to watch them too. But here's why I struggle with them. Every time I sit down to watch them, they'll cut away to one of the... Um, Uh, contestants. And almost always, here's what the contestant is saying. I'm so glad I did this because here's what it's taught me. It's taught me that I just need to have faith in myself, that I really am a good person and a strong person, and that I should trust myself and I should just do it. And, and, And then there's the one, I see this occasionally, it just blows my mind. The woman who will say, oh, what this has taught me is that I've been spending too much time with my kids and not spending enough time with myself. And I just listen to this, and I know it's very inspirational. I get it. Yes, if you can conceive it and believe it, you can achieve it. Yes, I have the power. It's deep inside of me. Deep. It's me. Oh, that's the that's the power of human potential. And I get it's so inspirational. I'll even shed a tear with Jackie and Darby as we watch it. But it's a lie. It's a lie. But we just drink it up. We just, we just drink it up. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. The person who says, I believe in myself, I don't need God. Paul would say, they're a fool. And he is not able to understand the things of God because they are spiritually discerned. The person who doesn't have the Holy Spirit can't understand what God is saying. That's that's why the wisdom of God is foolishness to us. And and Paul even says, here you go, look at verse 7 in Romans chapter 8 again. He's trying hard to make sure we understand this. He says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it can't. In other words, faith in yourself is folly. It's just folly. And here you go. If you buy that stuff, and I know there's people in here who buy that stuff, even people who confess Christ, you still buy that stuff because you've been to college, and that's what they told you in college, and you went to high school, and that's what your high school teachers told you, and you went to kindergarten, and that's what they told you in kindergarten. You, You suddenly got potty trained, and oh, see, you had the power inside of you to be potty trained. Yes, and you had your first affirmation ever outside of your parents. And you're beginning to become enamored with yourself, and then you listen to Sesame Street and Oprah and Miley Cyrus and the whole world. If you buy this, you're only going to let yourself down because you can't do it. In fact, all of us have let ourselves down. The vast majority of us won't admit it. Why? Because we're too proud to admit it. And that's what God has come to shatter with his grace and his love. You don't need to worry about that stuff anymore. Jesus will never let you down. He always gives us what we need. And then verse 8, he says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We can't please God with our religion. We can't please God with our causes. We can't please God with our morality. We certainly can't please God with our sin. And the reason this verse is true is because if you're in your flesh, you are trusting your flesh. Which means you're not trusting God. And we've said this over and over and over the last several weeks. Our job is not to please God. Our job is to trust God because the only way we can please God is to first trust Him. We get these things all mixed up. C.S. Lewis tells us we're so focused on the secondary things that we forget the primary things. Pleasing God is a secondary thing. The primary thing is to trust Him, to have faith in Him, to put your life in His hands. So the big idea today is that to set our mind on the spirit of life sets us free from the flesh, from sin, and from death. Jesus is the object of our faith and trust. Holiness is the byproduct. Christian holiness comes as a result of God having invaded our lives, intervened when we couldn't do anything for ourselves, and now we walk that out. And so now some of you are like, okay, okay, this sounds great, but how, how, Frank, how do I do? I still need a list, Frank. How do I do this? Okay, here you go. Here comes the tension. I'm not going to give you any methodology, but I'm going to to give you some suggestions and some stories that I I hope and pray will help you with this. And here's the first thing. And the reason I bring this up is because I think this might be the most important thing, but it's the thing that most of us just run by and forget about, and we never consider. And it even goes back to the, the, the woman caught in adultery, probably very excited that she's not condemned anymore, but then Jesus tags her with, oh, by the way, don't sin anymore. Here's what it is. We need to count the cost of what it means to be in relationship with Jesus, the creator God of the universe. In Mark chapter 5, when when Jesus is walking with Jairus, very slowly, because Jairus' daughter is dying, and, and the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years comes up to him, and she thinks in her mind, if I just touch him, maybe I'll be made well, and she touches him, and and, and she's healed and Jesus felt the power go out from him and he says, hey, who, who touched me? It says that the woman came to her with great fear and trembling. There's, there's a measure of fear and trembling, of, of reverence and awe, of majesty and mystery that I think is missing in, in, in many of our relationships. mine too, our relationship with Christ. He is the creator God of this universe and he holds everything in his hands there should be some respect, some awe, and there should be some measure of, of reverence and understanding that there might be cost. In other words, our lives might change when we come to Christ. Yeah, I know mine did. Mine, mine changed in, in interesting, it, and other people have said they've had this this experience too. There were immediate changes that happened when I came to Christ, very immediate But then there's been long-term changes since then, just changes that have unfolded over the last 27, 28 years. The closer I get to him, the more he reveals to me and the more I change. So we need to count the cost. Now, if you're not a Christian, here's the part where I would say you need Jesus. But this is also the part where I need to say you also need to know what that means to come to Christ. Even Jesus said, Jesus, this is Jesus' teaching, not mine. He said, count the cost first. You, you need to know what you're getting yourself into. See, a lot of people approach Jesus saying, I, I want that. I, 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 I want that. I really do. I, 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 want, I want the freedom that Christ brings in my life. But they don't realize that to have it, it's going to cost something. Things are going to change. Jesus is not something that that you grab and place in your back pocket as sort of an insurance policy against disasters. He's going to change your life. And thank God he does. I am glad for the changes. My wife is glad for the changes that Christ has brought in my life. And sometimes it costs something. So the person who looks at Jesus and says, I want that, but but doesn't understand there's going to be a cost. Jesus once told a parable about uh, the four different soils and throwing seed on the four different soils. That second soil, that's the people who want Jesus but, but don't realize it's going to cost them anything. Jesus taught that on that soil he threw out the seed and it was hard and and the seed was able to, to take root, but, but only on the surface. It, the roots weren't able to go deep. So when the plant sprung up, all the per- persecution and opposition and trials of life and the challenges in life and the, and, and, the, and the tribulation came and the plant wilted very quickly and died off and they weren't able to hang in there with Jesus. I want Jesus, but I don't want the cost. I don't want the trouble. It's a silly illustration, very silly illustration, but I'm going to use it anyway. The people in the first service, eh, we did a survey, 55% of the people liked it, so I'll use it here. So when my daughters were little, we'd be going something and they'd say, hey, uh, can, we, can we bring uh, our Barbies? How many of you have daughters and, have bar- and they have Barbies? Okay, so when they say bring the Barbies, you know what that means, right? That's like, that's like more than just a doll in an outfit, right? okay. So, can we bring the Barbies? And I always said, I always said, yes, you may, but if you bring the Barbies, you're going to carry the Barbies, you're going to be in charge of the Barbies, and you're going to take care of the Barbies, and you're going to be responsible for the Barbies. And it was like, no, Dad, you take them, you carry them. We just want you to bring them so that we'll have them. And I always say, how badly do you want your Barbies? Okay, now, I know, right, right, where You go. Frank's comparing God to Barbie, OK? So not. But hear me in this, OK? How badly do you want Jesus? How badly do you want it? We have to ask ourselves that question at some point. All of us have to ask that question: Do you want the spirit-filled life or not? There is a part we play. There's a journey we go on. There are sacrifices we're going to make. There's going to be a cost. Your life will change when you come to Christ. It's Tim Keller saying, unless you're willing to die, you are already dead. You're either going to die in your flesh right now, or you're going to die in Christ, and He's going to make you alive. That's the choice. So those of you who are already Christians, let me ask you this question. This is one that... Tyler Johnson, our lead pastor over all the redemptions, posed to us a couple of weeks ago. And he says he likes to say this when he goes out and speaking. He he says this to Christians. He says, Christians, those of you who acclaim Christ, how much of God do you really have? And he would say, don't answer that because I already have the answer for you. You have as much of God as you want. You have as much of God as you want. You have as much as you freneo. See, the problem... Is not that God holds out on us. As human beings, we have this tendency to kind of do a little something here and then go, God's holding out on us. He's obviously holding out on me. He's playing his cards close to the vest. No, God never holds out on us. How can, how can a God who gave us his only son be said to have be said to hold out on us? It's we who hold out on God. You and I, we hold things too tightly. We're the ones with our cards close to the vest. We're holding out on God. I'm holding out on God. What do I have to do to have the Spirit-filled life? Here it is. You have to trust. You have to have faith. There's no formula. There's no methodology. And just understand that this is done by Christ's power and not ours. Therefore, we have to seek after Jesus. And if the Spirit is in you, you're going to naturally want to seek after Jesus. Here you go. The opposite of being hostile to something, I would suggest, would be to love something. How do we love something? So, how do I love Jackie? I love Jackie. As much as any human could love another human, I think I love Jackie, my wife. Okay? So how do I love her? I love her by spending time with her. That's my favorite thing to do with her. And I show her love by spending time with her and being with her. I do not show my love to Jackie by researching her. I've never thought to myself, I really love Jackie. I'm going to go Google her. That makes no sense. But so many of us are out there, ah, okay, okay. Here you go, you gotta spend time with him. That means spend time in his word because this is how you get to know him. Spend time in prayer, but spend time listening in prayer. Don't be so ready to dictate to God what we need in prayer, but but be ready to spend time in prayer listening to God and then spend time with his people. Yes, we are outward focused and we should be on mission, but we also need to be with his people. Be in your redemption communities. You need to be in there because you're going to share your struggles. You're going you're to offload some of your burdens to some of the other people in there. And they're going to encourage you and they're going to love you. And hopefully they'll feed you a decent meal. And you'll be able to, it'll encourage you. It'll build you up. Spend time with God. Spend time with who you love. And I understand it sounds an awful lot like I'm telling you what to do. So there is tension here, amen? Let me, let me finish it by just saying, here's my personal, I'm just going to lay this out for you the next couple of minutes. Here's my personal struggle with this. This is, this is how it's been, this is how it's happened in my life and continues to happen in my life because it's not over yet. I became a Christian 27, 28 years ago. And, and a couple of years after that, I, I, I was going through Romans and I discovered Romans chapter 8 verse 1 instantly became one of my favorite verses. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm in Christ Jesus, no condemnation for me. That's awesome. And I understood it cognitively. I understood it intellectually. I understood it well enough that I could actually teach it to somebody else. But I was afraid to understand it viscerally. I was afraid to understand it affectively because that meant that I would actually have to give my life to God and trust him with the fact that I have a desperately dark and wicked heart. One of my other favorite verses in Scripture is Jeremiah seventeen nine, which says, and this is true of my heart, it's true of yours as well, the heart is wicked and deceptive above everything else. Who can understand it? I was afraid and have been afraid to live the life purely in the freedom of the fact that there is now no condemnation no matter what I do because I was sure that my dark heart would take me right to the depths of sin and here's what I've discovered God has been so gracious with me that he has not done that with me do I still sin yes we're all still sinners but he's protected me from that because as the spirit has walked with me and has been in me i've begun to see things in my life that 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 gloriously and to the glory of God I've been able to change for the better and I've been been walking under the counsel of the law even though I really don't even know the law by his power the opposite of what I was afraid would happen has happened he has been faithful and he has fulfilled his promise in me and the more I let go of those things and those fears the more God has just jumped into my life and it is scary. But he promises to do that. And Paul says, walk by the Spirit. Because in the Spirit we have life and peace. We Live by the Spirit because of what, is, what God has done, not because we tried really hard. We're going to have communion in a second, respond. We're going to be able to give. Sean's going to come and, and lead us in that. So as you do that, just... Just walk by the Spirit. Understand that Christ is in you. And, and, and you get to come to his, his table and sup with Him. You are His and He is yours. God, we thank You for this truth. We pray that Your Holy Spirit would just stir us up and lead us and guide us and direct us. And that we would set our minds on the things of your spirit and that we would trust you in doing that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.